And this is history, it's a fact. So you can't reform something that was created for genocide or enslavement because racism is intrinsic to its existence. Welcome back to episode four of The Global Get Down. I'm your host, Giselle. In today's episode, I am joined by Haley Dash, an undergraduate student at UBC in her fifth and final year specializing in international relations and social justice. She is the co-founder of Asilu Collective, which is an anti-racist feminist group working to abolish police presence in Ottawa schools. Welcome to the show, Haley. Thanks, Giselle. I'm happy to be here to talk about the work I'm doing and in the comfort of your room. Yeah, it's nice to be able to record this episode within our household because we're in the same bubble. and Yeah, very COVID-friendly, and I get to wear my house slippers in your rocking chair. Cozy and COVID-friendly. Yes. And we would also like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Muskegon, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations. All right, so let's get started by taking it back to how you embarked on this journey. What resulted in you pursuing this collective and your initiatives? Yeah, so earlier this year, um, like April, um, around April, May, there was a lot of growing support for defunding and demilitarizing the police. Both locally in my hometown of Ottawa, where we're doing this work, and globally, obviously, we see the protests um, across the U.S., Europe, um, of course, Canada, and the rest of the world, um, especially with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, And so two friends and I from high school, we all graduated from the same high school in 2016. We saw that no group in Ottawa was undertaking the work specifically around policing in schools, So we decided that we would undertake this campaign as we knew we could dedicate all our time and energy to this well into the future. Um, And it was also a personal um, issue for all of us, um, myself being South Asian and the two other Mm co-founders of the CELA Collective being Black. Um, We've seen um, our communities and other marginalized and impoverished communities being over-policed historically. So this was something really important to us. Um, So we started a petition um, it garnered hundreds of signatures um, from the Ottawa community, just calling on the school boards to remove cops from schools. Um, and along with that, dozens of people submitted personal stories and feelings towards this issue. Um, so policing in schools is really, really key um, to policing in general and you know, carceral systems in Canada, um, especially considering the school-to-prison pipeline. And it just allows this kind of environment of policing to, to be sustained and allow Black, Indigenous, and other uh, marginalized communities to continue to exist under um, a violent oppression from a very, very young age. So it's very dangerous. Yeah, thanks for sharing your personal experiences and how you uh, came about finding a Sulu Collective. But you mentioned the school-to-prison pipeline. For listeners that might not know what that concept means. Could you talk a little bit more about it? Yeah, definitely. Um, So the school-to-prison pipeline essentially is the over-policing of racialized um, and other marginalized youth. So this could be like low-income, drug-using, disabled, um, and of course Black, Indigenous, Muslim youth. 
Um, and so they're over-policing in both in their schools and on school property as well as in their neighborhoods results in the over-representation of these children in carceral facilities. So this starts off as youth detention centers and then transitions into prisons. So it's like the very nature of the name itself. It takes these kids out of their school and <clears throat> puts them into prisons. Yeah, exactly. And it's happening because of their differences, most often their racial differences. And this is really evident in Ontario, where I'm from, um, because of the extreme over-representation um, of racialized youth, especially Black and Indigenous boys and girls in youth detention centers. Like, Black and Indigenous boys are four to five times more likely to be in these centers um, compared to their white counterparts. And then Indigenous girls are actually ten times more likely than their white counterparts and peers to be in these detention centers. Yeah, those numbers are staggering to hear, and it's quite a daunting statistic. Yeah, it's very, very alarming. And so um, something else that's really important to the school-to-prison pipeline is um, is that not only police are taking part in this, um, but policing um, can also be perpetuated and acted by um, teaching administration through kind of like a zero tolerance approach. So in Ontario, for example, this is enacted provincially through the Safe Schools Act um, from 2001. And so these kids are targeted not only by cops, but also the teaching administration who patrol their halls and they view the behavior of racialized children as adultified, meaning that it's... um, Instead of being seen as typical teenage behavior, Mm -hmm. they're now seen as criminals. And what they're doing is seen as criminal activity. And so from a very young age, these children are met with police violence. um, And they're interrogated, accosted, arrested um, at school because of this, in their neighborhoods because of this. And so um, it sets them up for a lifetime of policing. And the work we're doing um, on the school-to-prison pipeline is in Mm -hmm. high schools. which is where most of the police presence is across Canada. But this also happens um, when the teaching administration is involved. They'll call police officers um, to uh, elementary schools and, and to handle younger children. And, um, in Peel, which is right outside mm-hmm. of Toronto, a six-year-old black girl, she, she was like handcuffed and restrained on the ground by multiple police officers because the teaching administration called them to Why do Why were so. police at the school to begin with, and what are they saying? Well, Ken, police were at the school because staff had called 911 saying the girl was acting violently and that they couldn't calm her down. Police say it was necessary to handcuff her because she was a danger to herself, other students and staff, but the girl's family and their lawyers say the force was excessive. These stories you share and you hear, it just continues to emphasize how bad this issue is getting despite everything we're doing. Yeah, definitely. And it's like important to talk about this in the Canadian context, just because in the news we usually see um, and talk about the U.S. Right. Um, so I think it's really important for Canadians to bring it back home and understand this is definitely a Canadian issue as well. Yeah, I, in fact, went to high school in the state of New York, right. and we saw a lot of police often come onto campus to do their checkups, and they would often marginalize the black uh, boys on our campus. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you're saying this is happening in Canada, which isn't often highlighted as much, to six-year-olds or just kids that have barely finished kindergarten, it just goes to show how deeply rooted the police margin, uh, the police presence has become in 
March most youth lives. Yeah, for sure. And it's like happening before these kids are even exposed to the idea of racism and what racism is sometimes. Right. Um, so how is policing in schools related to other movements that also center policing, such as the Black Lives Matter or the and SARS movement in Nigeria? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, kind of like what I hinted at uh, just a minute ago is that we need to conceptualize policing as like a larger institution of punishment and surveillance that's not only enacted by police, but also people like, um, like I mentioned, teaching administration, you know, social workers can do this, the military, you know, and other surveillance um, apparatuses across the world. So children in schools are exposed to police violence because the school administration believes punishment is an effective means to control their behavior mm-hmm. or even controlling their behavior, um, particularly non-normative behavior, what we don't think is normal, um, in general is a form of policing. So it's not just from cops. Um, it's just essentially the enforcement of a set of rules by anyone who um, is able to like system- systemically ensure the disenfranchisement um, of marginalized communities. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned SARS. Um, we can see how... in. Like in Nigeria, Mm -hmm. SARS is a colonial police force, so the UK funds and trains them. Um, And they some conspiracy theory. This is uh, truthful and and historically accurate. So they are a colonial police force, and um, they are backed by Western powers, and they're upholding their interests in Nigeria. Again, we're seeing this, like, controlling of black populations, um, so our campaign to remove police presence from schools is totally connected with these movements inherently because we're addressing larger systems of oppression um, through kind of like abolitionist principles because we are an abolish- abolitionist collective, just kind of like Black Lives Matters chapters across the world. So we're kind of envisioning um, a world, um, hopefully in our lifetime, where cops don't have to exist. They don't exist. Neither do prisons. Um, the military, CSIS, RCMP, child welfare system in Canada, you know, these are all forms of surveillance, policing, punishment. Right. And so you bring up this con- uh, concept of a SILU being an abolitionist collective. And even to this day, there's this increase in demand uh, to change to uh, policing. And often discussions have revolved more around reform and defunding but not necessary abolition, as you mm-hmm. have mentioned previously. Would you like to elaborate on what your abolitionist work entails and how that actually differs from the more common thre- uh, threats of demanding reform and defunding within police departments? Yeah, that's a really good question, because I think a lot of these terms are getting like thrown around um, without really understanding right. where they're rooted in or what they actually mean. So. Like, first, let's, like, think about defunding. Like, this was initially conceptualized as the primary step towards abolition. And so I think everyone understands that it is a reallocation of funds to services that are underfunded or they don't exist right now. So, like, childcare, housing, food security, um, harm reduction facilities, and just alternatives to police response, right? And so the absence of these services severely impacts marginalized communities, and then with the reallocation of these funds, policing would become obsolete. So defunding does mean defunding the police into abolition, right? right. Mm-hmm. But like you said, I feel like defunding um, recently kind of has been co-opted 
um, by reformist movements to symbolize a slight decrease in police funds, but wherein the police, essentially, they still exist. Right. So it's defunding them a little bit, but not. But they, they still exist, and they're still policing. They're still around. They're still within the communities. Exactly. Um, and we see this a lot with kind of this re- police reform into community policing, which is um, the police trying to rebrand as, you know, oh, we're, we're going to, like, relate to your communities and we're going to put racialized police officers into your communities so that we can understand you better. It's like a one-on-one relationship. Um, again, this is just, like, an in- more intimate form of surveillance. Right. The other day, I remember coming out to the living room and telling you guys I saw a van passing by and it said Vancouver Community Surveillance mm-hmm. or something yep. like that. And <laughs> I had to ask, was that, was that the police or was that something that's yeah. new? But it was just the police oh, rebranded. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's still the VPD. Um, yeah, it's, it's rebranding, exactly. So people imagine that this would solve problems such as police brutality, which is like fueled by racism, of course, but that's impossible. Like none of this rebranding or co-option um, of reform or defunding Um, is able to eliminate racism or brutality because policing in itself is Mm -hmm. racist. Um, And we can go back to thinking about, like, the establishment of the RCMP in Canada. And it was established to eliminate Indigenous peoples from their land by colonizers. Um, To this day, the RCMP aids the ongoing genocide that's occurring with Indigenous peoples, um, a genocide that even Trudeau acknowledged last year. And so you can't reform this. It's just, it's impossible or we can think of local police forces mm-hmm. and like VPD or Ottawa Police Services. Um, and they emerged out of slave patrols in Canada. Um, I know we Canadians often forget that there, there was slavery in Canada. Um, but enslaved Africans in Canada, they were patrolled by local police authorities um, called slave patrols. And then this is how entities like VPD, OPS, Toronto Police Services, they came to be. And this is history. It's a fact. So you can't reform something that was created for genocide or enslavement because racism is intrinsic to its existence. So at the start of this conversation, you mentioned that your campaign to remove SROs in Ottawa began with a petition which garnered support from hundreds of people. And you mentioned dozens of people sharing their personal stories. Would you mind sharing a brief overview of trends and patterns that seem to occur to marginalized students when they came in contact with SROs that you might have particularly seen through the personal stories that we share? Yeah, definitely. Um, so when we've received these stories, we're looking at the short-term and long-term impacts on these youth. So this is like physical, psychological, emotional violence that they're enduring. Um, so a lot of the time we see that uh, this has a direct This direct exposure um, to this violence, whether it be like emotional or physical, um, the kids understand why this is happening. And so uh, this is really impacting their self-esteem. They understand they're being labeled because of their race and they are being targeted not only as individuals, but as a community. And they know how their white peers are treated in Mm -hmm. contrast. Um, So they see this. It's impacting their self-esteem, their trust with um, not just cops or teaching administration, but just authoritative figures. Um, Something else that we've seen is um, that a lot of these kids are saying that they already see 
police in their neighborhoods very frequently. So police presence is actually something that never leaves their lives Mm -hmm. because when they leave their home, they walk to school, they bus to school, whatever, and then they arrive, and then there's more cops. Um, And the SRO program is quite unique because it actually allows police officers to follow kids home um, and deal with um, so-called school-related issues Mm -hmm. outside of the school. And so police officers under the SRO program are allowed to speak to these minors um, without parental supervision and whatnot. And so um, a lot of these kids have said that um, they just can't, it's, they can't escape it. Um, something else, um, that really stood out was the police involvement, police involved suspensions for black and brown youth. Um, it's often boys, um, whose dress code is heavily policed and, um, and it's policed by police officers and administration, um, because anything that they wear, especially black youth, um, is seen as gang affiliated. So like do rags or, um, bandanas. Um, and these kids are just trying to go to school and look good. Like these are accessories for them. Um, but they are seen as criminals as soon as they wear this. And so it's their, their culture that's being seen as criminal and also their blackness, um, as well. Yeah. So you mentioned these young boys and heavy policing on the dress code. Mm -hmm. Um, what were trends and complaints you saw among girls, especially since Earlier you mentioned indigenous girls were 10 times more likely to be incarcerated than their peers. So is there an example or anything you've heard from girls' experiences? Yeah, definitely. Um, In terms of girls, we got a lot... This was something that um, that wasn't necessarily on my radar when we Mm -hmm. first started doing this research and this outreach um, with youth and our campaign when it began... Um, but police a lot of the time are called to investigate um, sexual harassment and assault complaints from girls. So when um, high school girls are going to administration about something like this, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of the time um, they call in cops to deal with this, um, which of course is, is very problematic. Um, and so what happens is these police officers will, um, you know, so-called interview these young girls and they these girls have raised concerns um, explaining that police officers has, have slut-shamed them. They're trying to poke holes in their stories, um, delegitimizing their stories through that. Victim-blaming is something that came up a lot. And so a lot like a lot of the time, this these young girls, it's, it might be their first exposure to um, sexual violence. And so it also is their first exposure to any kind of help that is supposedly there for them. And then they see that actually there is no support from these, you know, police officials that are so like apparently there to help them. Right. And yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's obviously something that's not easy to hear, especially in the early morning times. (laughs) And it's quite, it's just such a daunting reality to live in. And it's very interesting that you said that this, the girls trends about slut shaming and uh, poking holes in their story kind of emerged through your research and like while we might have been aware of it you weren't expecting it to be the first thing to kind of pop up yeah and also like after um, looking more into this issue and seeing this trend of Mm -hmm. young girls um, dealing with 
um, assault and harassment claims with officers, we see like why this is happening is a lot of these racialized girls are, like I said, I used the word adultified earlier, but they're also sexualized. Mm -hmm. Um, and the reason they're being slut shamed and victim blamed is because, um, they are racialized, they're black, they're indigenous, they're brown, um, they're seen as hypersexual and hyperactive and, you know, they're bringing this upon themselves, you know, because their um, race inherently makes them this way right. and it makes them hypersexual, which of course is not the case. And it is simply because they're racialized that they're seen this way. Right. Well, yeah, so your collective's done a lot of research, uh, clearly from collecting personal stories to your petitions. And how has your team gone on to conduct, sorry about that, how has your (laughs) team gone on to conduct um, research to further your campaign? Yeah, so like like we already talked about, like we're collecting stories um, through youth outreach and our petition um, form um, and other means to get stories from students who are willing to share their experiences. And so we've been doing that, which, um, again, collecting anecdotes, and these aren't just from students, it's also educators um, who, or people who work within the education system, so this could also be guidance counselors, Um, and we are, are like, um, therapists and and other people who are in the school system who Mm -hmm. deal with students and who, like, witness all of this, and they a lot of the time are saying um, that students don't want to work with police officers and that redirecting them from teaching admin to police officers can be really harmful. We have parents saying the exact same thing, right. that their children don't feel comfortable with police presence um, for the same reasons that the students are saying, um, and other communities in Ottawa um, who understand how this is really harmful. Um, and that and they're just general perceptions of police presence. And so we're kind of coding this data based on um, which school board they're affiliated with, what themes are present. Um, if they um, mention their race or their gender, we like take that into consideration. Um, and then we're also doing kind of external research when we're examining um, published um, documents and reports and research mm-hmm. from uh, Ontario, like especially Toronto or other right. parts of Canada. We've taken a look at um, data from Nova Scotia, and this all revolves around policing in schools. So we're looking at the Safe Schools Act, which is um, from Ontario. It um, it makes police presence in schools mandatory in every Ontario school. Um, And we're just kind of looking at our findings. And of course, they are concluding that student safety and barrier-free education is only ensured through the removal of cops. How can listeners access this data once it becomes available? Um, yeah, so we're actually releasing a report um, that compiles all of this um, and just kind of syn- synthesizes it in like a legible way for readers. Um, and we're going to be releasing that in coming weeks. And so they can subscribe to our mailing list. Mm-hmm. Um, so we send frequent updates or they can look on our social media. Again, we put frequent updates. Um, and all of that is at the Silu Collective, or our website is asiloucollective.ca, so that's A-S-I-L-U collective.ca, where you can subscribe to our mailing list for updates, um, and then we're going to post the report there as well, of course, and then Instagram and Twitter are at the Silu Collective, so we'll also post updates about our report there, where you can um, take a look at all our research that's being conducted. 
Listeners can also find the petition on your website, and if yes. they would like to sign it, they can go ahead and do that. Yes, and we also host events and workshops and things like that all around like the um, policing and carceral systems, um, so you can always get involved. Um, again, just we're always updating social media and our website um, to relay that information to you all. Do you have any other collaborations or projects that you're working on or have worked on? Yeah, um, so myself and Asilu's other two co-founders, we've spoken on a number of panels and, and rallies as well about policing in recent months. Um, so folks have attended this live, um, both in person and virtually because of COVID. Um, and a lot of them have been interactive, so that's always really great. So people can ask questions um, and, you know, we can have brainstorming sessions about like what's next. And these are all recorded. Um, oftentimes and put onto our social media so if you can't make it live um, you can watch it later and yeah we have lots planned for upcoming weeks in terms of direct action which folks can participate in virtually um, and on the ground so stay tuned and more the most recent thing that we have come up with is a student workshop Mm -hmm. um, a training workshop so we're going to be talking to Ottawa high schoolers Um, this is on December 3rd we're going to be talking to them about um, direct action, mm-hmm. how they can enact change and use their power as students, um, and um, knowing your protesting rights and using their student leadership skills, etc. So that's something that um, people might be interested in taking a look at. So to wrap it up, what does the future of Asilu Collective look like for you? It looks like getting cops out of schools. Um, as soon as possible, so that children and youth have equal access to education that's free from violence. Preferably in our lifetime. Yes, preferably (laughs) in the next few months, actually. (laughs) As soon as possible. And how can other students interested in making change get involved in student activism? Or do you have any specific advice you can provide for Vancouver listeners? Yes, so I would say find a local organization or group that speaks to you. the UBC and Vancouver community has lots, including um, Vancouver's very own No Cops in Co- School campaign. Um, they have an Instagram. Um, I think it's just No Cops in School. Um, so they're doing really great work. There's Climate Justice UBC, UBC Social Justice Center, Black Lives Matter Vancouver, Newsy Collective is also really great. Um, so reach out to them, ask how you can help. And if you don't have time to commit yourself um, to this work with them, you should redistribute your money <laughs> to these orgs. Um, or similar orgs, um, or indigenous movements whose land you occupy. That's always very important because this is unpaid work and and these people are just doing it because um, it's out of survival for their communities. So money is very important in these times, especially. Right, and if people have listened throughout the whole episode today, you can also see how you can conduct your own research and create your collectives like Haley and find uh, things that might not be happening in your community that needs to change that you can use how uh, you can listen to how she has conducted her research Mm. and go ahead and create something of your own if you have even more time yeah and if you folks are planning on doing that or thinking about doing that if you want to fill a gap in um, the activist work in your community I think it's really important to ally yourself with local organizations who are experienced organizers who know what they're doing and it's really helpful to do that and create a coalition of movements right um thank you for sharing that as well and 
how can listeners support Asilu specifically and your mission or get involved with the Asilu Collective? Um, I've plugged our social media already, so I'll say it again, um, at Asilu Collective on Instagram and Twitter, A-S-I-L-U. We also have a website, asilucollective.ca. Um, so you can take a look at upcoming events. Um, our toolkit is all there. So this is a really easy way to contact elected school board officials about the issue of police presence in schools. Um, so we have email scripts, um, and Mm -hmm. phone scripts, templates, um, sample tweets and, um, like who you should be tagging. And so it makes it really easy and accessible to do so. And if you want to get really involved, you can contact us via DM on Instagram or Twitter, um, or you can send us an email, uh, which is asilucollective at gmail.com. Again, it's A-S-I-L-U, collective at gmail.com. And you can reach out to us there about something you'd like to specifically work on with us. Thank you, Haley, for joining me on this episode of The Global Get Down. Thank you for having me in your room. This was fun. <laughs> it really was. It was also nice to see dogs passing by yeah. through the window. <laughs> Thank you to our audience for listening to today's episode of The Global Get Down. See you soon.